Hi there, and welcome to Insight Quantum, the podcast telling the human stories behind the latest developments in quantum technologies. I'm Dr. Stephen Thompson, and as usual, I'll be your host for this episode. In previous episodes, we've talked a lot about the theory of quantum technology and quantum devices, and we've spoken a bit about how quantum computers might work. But in the modern world, everything is connected. Communication between devices and between people is more important than ever. That raises the question of how quantum devices are going to communicate with each other and how they'll do it in a secure and reliable way. Today's guest works on solving exactly this problem. It's a pleasure to welcome Dr. Viviana Vishafania, an experimental physicist and a distinguished postdoctoral researcher at the Walter Schottky Institute and the Munich Center for Quantum Science and Technology, working on quantum communications. Thanks for joining us, Viviana. Thank you very much for having me here today, Stephen. It's a pleasure for me. So before we get on to the details of the quantum communications aspects of your work, let's talk about your journey so far to this point. And can we start right at the very start? Could you tell us what first got you interested in quantum physics? Well, um, I must say we should go back first. Of course, I got interested in physics in general during high school. So I started reading a lot of physics books. Then I signed up for physics Olympiads, uh, these kinds of competitions between high schools. And when I started my PhD, uh, I started to enjoy quantum physics related topics a lot. So at the time I was studying a complex system involving strong interactions between photons and photons. And I also started teaching quantum mechanics at my former university. And while teaching, I realized that I really uh, liked quantum mechanics a lot because it was predicting untrivial phenomena. It was very beautiful and simple. And um, then I was trying to apply all these quantum co- concepts into the system that I was really studying. And yeah, by the time I finished my PhD, it became really clear to me that I, for my postdoc, I, I really wanted to go quantum and study a clear and a clean quantum system. That's why... When I was offered the possibility to come here to Germany, in Munich, uh, to study a prototypical quantum system, such uh, the one that I'm studying now, which are silicon vacancies and diamonds, I just couldn't refuse. It, it's just like a single electron confined in a silicon vacancy. It's a, a typical two-level system. We can play with spin information, and I can really apply all these concepts that I really enjoy uh, studying and thinking about. So, yeah, that's how mostly all started in a very briefly way. <laughs> so it wasn't until your PhD then that you really got into to quantum physics. It wasn't something that you, you saw in your undergrad and you decided to pursue a PhD in? You decided already to do a PhD in something else and then discovered quantum physics afterwards? Yes, exactly. So I, I was doing my PhD mostly in condensed matter systems and all the phenomena that we were studying at the time was purely classical, but then I was always thinking, okay, but what's the quantum aspects? And then I started diving deeper on what I was doing. And I, yeah, I started getting more and more interested in, in, in quantum physics. So I was actually doing cavity optomechanics, which is uh, the study between the interactions uh, between the vibrations of the system and the electric field that you can apply by, by 
uh, laser pulses and continuous wave lasers. And uh, of course, if you are uh, you start by studying a system that has a large number of photons and a large number of phonons, you're in the classical regime. Mm-hmm. But uh, as soon as you start decreasing the phonon and the photon number, you enter in the, in the quantum regime. And that's where the physics got really interesting. And that was kind of uh, a starting point of all my interest, so to say. Was it a natural decision then once you started to get interested in this that you thought, okay, I I really need to go and do a postdoc and pursue this further? Yes, because I found that I I really like looking at uh, Hamiltonians and I really like these new concepts that were arising. So mostly, you know, in in quantum physics, people say, okay, we had the first quantum revolution that helped us to uh, design and shape all the semiconductors that we are all using today in the technologies that we use every day, such as computers and cell phones. And now we are in a point that we are uh, reaching the second quantum revolution, uh, looking at concepts that were predicted by the theory, but we never pay attention to. So, for instance, what happens with quantum entanglement, what happened with the projection of the states when we measure. And this is kind of the path that I followed. So I started studying semiconductor systems, like in the first quantum revolution. And then I was like, oh, I'm interested to see what the future is holding. And then I, uh, yeah, starting to become aware that people were actually studying these uh, spooky phenomena, as Einstein said, and I kind of want to be, a, I wanted to be a part of it. So, yeah. <laughs> I tried to uh, change a little bit the topic during my postdoc and, yeah, try to do more uh, quantum stuff. <laughs> nice. So you mentioned there the, the second quantum revolution then. So can you say a bit more about what that is and why it's so exciting? Yes, I believe that uh, the second quantum revolution uh, is something that we are experiencing right now. Um it comes with the advent of these uh, extremely uh, new and powerful technologies, such as the development of the new quantum computers, well, quantum communication systems, such uh, as the ones that I'm trying to work uh, with. And they explore or exploit uh, different aspects of the quantum theory that until now hadn't been used to to produce these new and powerful technologies such like um for instance if you have a, a quantum computer and you're um, using qubits and you produce entanglement between different qubits to achieve uh, quantum supremacy or if you want to do quantum communications so you have to do uh, the quantum teleportation of the state of a qubit into another one to achieve a communication between two parties that might be located at different places in the world. These are the things that up to now, um, us as a humanity, hadn't been uh, yeah, aware of that or haven't been exploring too much and that now are getting put into, into real life technologies. So this is, I think, what people are calling the second quantum revolution. So it's quite exciting, actually. So a new uh, type of technologies are coming. Uh, They're going to impact our everyday life. And I think it's going to be awesome. (laughs) Pretty excited to see the future. Yeah, absolutely. I guess uh, some examples of the the first quantum revolution would be things, as you mentioned, semiconductors, but also lasers, which if I understand correctly, were developed more or less to see if people 
could do it, but without any real practical application in mind. And now, now what would we do without lasers? <laughs> so much of our, our technology and our world relies upon these things. It's kind of mind-blowing to think what will our world look like in another 50 years after the second quantum revolution, after the technologies that you've mentioned that you're working on, that will probably also change our world in ways that we can't possibly imagine just yet. It will be really exciting to see what happens. Yeah. And to be part of that change, because now I'm doing research on this, for me, it's, yeah, it's like a dream come true. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think is the, the biggest challenge facing at least your, your field at the moment as part of this second quantum revolution? So what I'm currently doing, I'm working in building a quantum communications network. So in this sense, my main goal is to achieve and build a, and a scalable quantum technology that would allow us to do long range quantum secure communications. And the point is that uh, some people might not be aware, but these quantum communications are already happening. For instance, there is uh, right now a big network in South Korea and another in China between Beijing and Shanghai, where people are using quantum protocols to establish secure communications. Nonetheless, uh, even though these networks are secure because they are quantum, they have a challenge that needs to be addressed. And the point is that uh, up to date, there are no quantum repeaters. So this means that if you are, for instance, trying to distribute a single photon between the, emit the, the two people that want to establish a quantum communication, um, you will have, and you are going to send this photon through a fiber, you will have losses in the fiber. So typically, every 20 or 50 kilometers, this single photon will be lost, and the message that you're going to transmit will be lost. So what we want to do in our lab is to build a quantum repeater such that the information can be sent across long distances uh, without the need of third parties opening and reclosing the message. And I'm hoping that we, we, we can achieve this soon. And of course, by then, the existence of these networks and all the trials that are happening, as I mentioned, for instance, in China and South Korea, will be very beneficial. I see. So really developing a, a quantum repeater then is a technology that will allow quantum signals to be sent on much longer distances than is capable at the moment. So I can certainly see why that is an important step. Can you tell us a bit more about what the differences are between quantum communication and classical communication then? Why do we have to design a, a quantum repeater for quantum communication? Does the same problem arise in, in classical communication and how did they solve it there? So, I mean, yes, if you think about how classical communications are done today, so basically you have this optical network of fibers spread around the world. You can look at the map and see actually a lot of fibers crossing the Atlantic Sea. And what we are doing right now is sending classical optical pulses through these fibers and Every, let's say, 500 kilometers, you have what it's called a classical repeater, which is measures the incoming optical pulses, amplifies them, and repeats them. So that's how uh, a classical repeater works. 
Um, we would like to use the existing network to have quantum communications. So the approach would be, okay, what if instead of sending classical optical pulses containing millions of single photons, we send just a stream of single uh, photons. Mm -hmm. And for instance, we could encode the quantum information in the photon polarization. So that would be the difference between the classical and the quantum way. And in this sense, we need to be able to produce, store, man uh, manipulate, and measure these single photons. So why why is a quantum repeater so much more challenging than a, a classical repeater? You tell us that we've already got these, these classical repeater stations every few hundred kilometers. What's different about the quantum case that requires a new technology? Why is it so much more challenging to amplify and send on a quantum signal than a classical signal? So the issue is... Um, the issue that you're talking about, uh, why is it so challenging to, to build a, a quantum repeater, is the same reason why quantum communications are essentially more secure than classical communications. So uh, there is in quantum physics or uh, in quantum physics a theorem that it's called the non-cloning theorem, which says that basically if you have uh, a, an arbitrary message encoded in quantum information, this message cannot Essentially, it cannot be copied. So the same idea that we use for a classical repeater cannot be directly extrapolated to, to make a quantum repeater. And that's the first reason why quantum communications are secure. And the second reason would be that, for instance, if you have a spy that uh, would like to read the message that you are sending uh, by the laws of quantum mechanics, it will, the spy, when he measures or tries to read, he will uh, induce a state projection instantaneously. So the transmitter and the receiver would be aware that there was a problem in the, in the connection. So these two things make quantum communication safer. And these two things also are the ones that are saying that building a, a quantum repeater is a much more challenging task uh, in this case. But uh, luckily, there are a lot of proposals, a theoretical proposals on how a quantum repeater should work. Uh, one is to just, if you have a, a very long distance, you can start by dividing the total distance between transmitter and receiver in several segments. And then between each segment, you could place our quantum repeater. So the idea would be that then what we need to do is emit single photons in each segment and use the quantum repeaters to subsequently entangle photons that arrive from neighboring segments. And we could repeat this protocol until we extend the entanglement between the photon that is in position of the transmitter and one is uh, of the receiver. So this is what is called entanglement swapping. So it's kind of a teleportation algorithm that it's extended uh, to, to be like quantum repeater. I see. So it's exactly the properties of, of quantum systems that make them useful for communication also makes them a real challenge then because of this. Yes. You mentioned the no cloning theorem. So that, that's the reason why we can't just amplify the signal, I guess. If you try to do something like this, you change the signal. As soon as you, as soon as you touch a quantum state, as soon as you observe a quantum state, that's it. You've changed something about it. And I guess what quantum repeaters are doing, if I understand correctly, is that they're trying to find a way to avoid this, to pass the signal on, but without introducing these changes, these errors, I guess, in the signal. Exactly. Yeah. 
Okay, I see. So you you're an experimental physicist, so um, you actually work with with real systems and real materials. What kinds of setup do you use to to work on quantum communications? Okay, so I basically uh, work on an optical lab. So basically, I have an optical table that has different lasers that provide me either with continuous or pulse light in different color ranges. I'm typically working with two different physical systems. One is silicon vacancy in diamond, and the second one is semiconductor quantum dots. So you can imagine a small piece of diamond that I place in a cryostat. I just throw a little bit of liquid helium in the cryostat. I put the system at 4 Kelvin. Uh, in the case of diamonds, this low temperature allows me to have a what we call a long coherent time for the spin, which means that if I want to work with the spin of the electron that is confined in the silicon vacancy and I want to write the spin in a certain state, that spin will live longer until uh, the information is lost. In the case of quantum dots, these low temperatures help uh, to achieve a fast on-demand source of single photons. And then the lasers, in the case of diamonds, they help me to read and write certain spin states in the, in the silicon vacancy. And in the case of quantum dots, I use the laser to trigger the emission of, of single photons. So, for instance, every time I send a pulse to the quantum dot, uh, a certain pulse that I need to shape, so I need to choose which color and how long would be this pulse, but let's say that I know my system and I have already studied, so I know what to choose, I can obtain as an output a, a single photon. And yeah, I love it. It's a lot of fun being in the lab designing experiments, so definitely it's the best part of my job. <laughs> so does this mean that um, future quantum communication networks are going to be made of diamonds? I think so. I really, really think so. I think, well, in our approach here at Walter Schottke Institute, we think that up to now, no single system has all the correct properties for us to say. So we are aiming towards an hybrid approach in which we can identify the strength of each of the physical systems and use it in our benefits. So I mostly talk about two systems. Uh, quantum dots are basically a semiconductor system. It's like uh, something that you can grow very easily these days. It's like if you were, it's a zero-dimensional optical trap for electrons and holes. And it works really nice um, as a single photon source. So it's very fast. So every 200 picoseconds, you can have an emission of a single photon. And it has been proven that all the photons that the system emits are very similar to each other. So you can make them interact. So you can build high entangled state between two photons coming out of the same source, mm -hmm. which is not something that we would say about silicon vacancies and diamonds. Silicon vacancies and diamond are very slow at emitting photons at their, and they're not very bright, but they're very good because they have long coherence times, which is something that quantum dots don't have. So if you were to write something on the spin in the silicon vacancy, it can remain there up to 10 milliseconds. 
which is a lot. So it's more than an order of magnitude uh, of what you would get in a quantum dot. So what we are trying to do here is try to benefit from these two systems at Walter Schottky. So as I said, for these long-range quantum communications, we would need a stream of single photons traveling up to a quantum repeater. And we envision the quantum repeater made out of diamond with a single silicon vacancy on it. And we want to use the spin of that silicon vacancy as memory. So we will have a very fast source with a quantum dot emitting single photons. And when these single photons arrive and start scattering with our silicon, we could store uh, the information of the photons in the spin. So, yeah, this is what we really want to do. Because so, so far I've been saying quantum repeater, but this is how it would really look like. So the repeater itself, it would look like a diamond. The photon sources would look like a semiconductor, something that we already know. And yeah, in the middle, we have to build all the technology and all the protocols to make it happen. So I see. That's really interesting. I've heard about, um, about silicon vacancies and quantum dots, but I didn't realize that you could combine the, the strengths of both of these materials together to design one system that can harness both of those strengths and actually, yeah, use them to to work as a quantum repeater. That's really interesting. Thank you. Yeah, that's what we want to try at least. Uh, yeah, the, the issue... Um, so when you start studying silicon vacancies on diamond, what do you need to do? So we buy basically a diamond and then you go to a company and say, yes, can you shoot silicon into the diamond? And then you need to activate the center. And then the levels of the... Uh, yeah, the electronic levels of the electron that it's in there, they are completely defined. So it, as it turns out, the zero phonon line or the wavelength uh, that the silicon base can see interact with is 737 always. So you cannot change that because it's given by the atom you picked. In this case, it's silicon. And we chose silicon because it has a really long uh, coherence time. So it's a really good quantum memory, as we said. So most of the work that we have done, it was uh, actually engineering on the quantum dot because uh, so far there were no quantum dots working at 737. So we really had to look for, okay, how would you grow that? Uh, how would you optimize that? Which type of contacts can you add to such a structure such that we can uh, trap an electron there, take it out if we need to? And yeah, that was most of the work that, we, that we've been doing. Yeah. That was the most challenging part of, of this uh, process. And now we're at the point where we've finished optimization on the quantum dots and we're looking forward to do the interfacing to see if both systems want to be friends with each other and start interacting, which we don't know yet. <laughs> do you think that quantum secure communications will become widespread before quantum computers become widespread? It seems like there's a bit of a race here that one, one device can break all current encryption and one device brings a new unbreakable encryption, but which one's going to win this race? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> I'm not so sure. Um, yeah, probably it's going to be a, a tight race. But one fun, fun fact is um, if you look at the amount of quantum patents that are going out right now, so by country and by topic, 
So the United States is leading all the quantum patents related to quantum computing. So you have Google with Sycamore, for instance, and you have IBM, which also has a quantum computer. And if you look at China, they are uh, a leader in patterns related to quantum communication. So it seems like you have these uh, both very strong countries uh, doing different things that are related. So one is towards like breaking the code and the other one is towards looking how to secure the communications, which is, which really shows uh, the importance of what we're doing, right? It runs not only on yeah physical curiosity or technological applications, but also it has a lot of, uh, yeah, political impact in the future. So it's, it's a really complex subject. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess also, you know, we talk about secure communications and encryption the the obvious thing people might think of here is is military or government communications but also i guess on an everyday basis uh, so many of the signals that we send across the internet are encrypted in some way right our credit card details things that we use for online purchases so if you have the quantum computer that can can crack all of these codes then really we're all in trouble so yeah <laughs> i can completely see that having secure quantum communications is not it's not just a concern for maybe the politicians in the military, but actually it's something that, that we all need in the future. Yeah. yeah. And touching on, on the internet there, I mentioned that we, you know, we use encryption in our, our internet communications all the time. Would these quantum communication devices that you're working on, would they, would they essentially replace the internet as we know it? Let's say in 10 years, in 20 years, will we be using a, a quantum version of the internet instead of the current version? I think so. I hope so. I, I would like to think that, yes, we are going to. Um, yeah. yeah. As I told you, I think it's, it's, it's going to come naturally once quantum computers are there. Then, of course, uh, more and more um, efforts are going to be put into the quantum communications parts. As I tell you, there are already a lot of companies selling devices that can do quantum key distribution. There are some networks that are already there. So... Yeah, I think it's it's going to happen real soon. If you're sending signals using some kind of quantum communication device, do you need a quantum computer to receive and decode these signals? Or can they be received and decoded also on classical hardware? No, you you definitely need a, a, a quantum thing to, to receive the quantum information. So in this case, many people think uh, of... It's almost like doing a small quantum computer. So we only want to have one qubit in a quantum repeater, which is able to read and present somehow this information. So uh, in that sense, people are saying that it might be less challenging to actually have a quantum repeater because instead of having many entangled qubits, we only need one mm -hmm. to receive these photons. So yeah, I think both fields are extremely related. Uh, and it's it's like having a small quantum processor, which really needs all that it needs to be is a strong and efficient spin photon interface. So you need to have a spin memory that it's able to efficiently store uh, the information of a flying photon. So you, for instance, even could send me a single photon to me and I will receive it. Or in the middle, it would be a quantum repeater with a spin that can store that information and send it back to me. So, yeah, it's like a downscaling problem from a quantum computer in some sense. I see. I see. Okay. And if we if we did replace the classical internet with a quantum internet, <clears throat> everybody would need some sort of quantum decoding device in their homes, I guess, to, to yeah, interpret yeah, and decode right. these signals. 
Uh, I think so, yeah. That's interesting. I've, I've talked with previous guests about quantum computers and how useful will they be? You know, will we have a, a quantum computer in every home or will it be quantum computers are only for big companies and kind of living in the cloud? But I guess from what you're saying, if quantum communications become very widespread, okay, maybe we won't have, you know, a big hundred qubit quantum computer in our living room, but we have to have some some quantum technology just to to interpret the communications that we're receiving and to, to send other signals. Interesting. That's true, yeah. Because I, I think, so I, I would answer the same thing, right? If I think about a quantum computer, I would say, okay, we can have one and everybody can have their remote access and do their calculations there. But in this field, we will definitely need something down, uh, yeah, small that everybody can have. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a fun fact. <laughs> yeah, and the devices that you're working with, you mentioned earlier uh, cryostats so and liquid helium. So these devices have to be very cold at the moment. Is this going to be a challenge? I guess I, I can't imagine you could uh, keep all of these repeater stations cooled with liquid helium if you have one every five or ten kilometers all across the world. Is this... Uh, do they have to be cold or is this something that you're working on improving in the future? No, unfortunately, up to now, they have to be cold. So this is definitely det detrimental if you think of, yeah, um, global scale applications or people having these devices at home. There is still a, a long way to go in this direction. Mm -hmm. One approach that people are looking to is uh, start, as I said before, working with different types of vacancies that can work at much higher temperatures, um, but yeah, this is definitely something we need to work on. So the community kind of right now, I think, you know, wants to show a demonstrator or show that we can really have a quantum repeater. And while we are also trying to find something that could work at higher temperatures, of course, having a quantum memory at room temperature, I don't think that's going to be possible, but maybe we can, uh, yeah, um, try to increase a little bit the temperature such that it can be more reachable for yeah mass applications in the future but yeah this is something that that indeed we need to do better <laughs> i guess this comes back to the the problem that we always have with quantum technologies which is preventing decoherence right preventing systems from becoming entangled with their environment and just losing all of their quantum properties which so far seems to always require low temperatures in order to, to stabilize this stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So part of the work that you do involves quantum optics, which means that you're using light to control and manipulate quantum devices. Can you tell us a little bit about why this is useful? What is the advantage of using light to talk to and to control quantum devices? Yeah, okay. So first I would like to say that I love working in the optical lab and with lasers, so I think my answer might be biased. But having said that, um, yeah, there are some approaches where people use microwaves to try to uh, do the coherent control of the spin. But I'm a person that believes that all optical control gives access to ultra-fast spin manipulation. So that can allow for thousands of fast spin rotations, um, even in the presence of fast decoherence. And also, you typically use low power when we're working with lasers, so you definitely have less heating effects that induce decoherence. So mm. I'm up for the optical control of these systems. 
That's an interesting point. I hadn't I hadn't thought about heating. We talked there about keeping your systems cold, but of course, if you're shining a laser on your system either repeatedly or for a long period of time, that makes sense that heating would start to become a problem. Yes, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah that's the problem. Is this one of the reasons why diamond is a is a good material for storing the uh, the vacancies? Yes, but uh, of course, if you are applying a microwave all the time, you also will have some heating issues. So. But yes, of course, diamond is is a very good uh, conductor, heat conductor. So the dissipation should be better, I would say. Ah, this is a hard question because mostly what people do are building nanostructures around that single silicon vacancy. So it's not that you have a bulk material, so a bulk um, diamond matrix that can really dissipate the heat. So you end up with a nano beam that measures a few microns long for a few nanometers hundreds of nanometers wide so Mm -hmm. that's a tough one i guess you have to do some engineering there if you want to uh, optimize for heat dissipation especially if you're using microwaves okay and then the other point you mentioned there was that lasers have this kind of ultra fast repeat rates that uh, microwaves don't have so does this mean decoherence is less of a problem then if you can complete the operation that you want to complete sufficiently quickly before it decoheres if you can do this very, very quickly, then it doesn't really matter how long it exactly. takes to do exactly. I see, okay. And also dynamical decoupling sequences where you apply pulses that can decouple your spin from the environment. Even, and if you can do that faster uh, to follow the, the, the spin coherence, that, that that's usually an advantage. I see. Okay, interesting. Uh, I have a couple of questions to end with then. So... One question that I like to ask every guest on this podcast is that physics has historically not been a very diverse science, a very diverse field of research. It's been largely dominated by white cisgender men for a very long time. I think and I hope that things are starting to change slowly in this modern world. Over the course of your career so far and and having worked in several different countries, have you seen attitudes change at all, either over time or in the different countries where you've worked? Yes, I think everything is becoming much better in many aspects. So I'm glad that we are definitely being part of a change in society and especially in science that it's very nice to experience. Um, for instance, what we're doing right now, giving me exposure in media, uh, featuring this like a woman in science, it really helps because it sets a nice example. There might be young people there considering to come in this field. It's, it's nice you know, for them to have references. And also, I think here in Germany, it's, 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 they're doing a lot of things that are great in this sense. So there are many fellowships and funding opportunities that are directly addressed to women. For instance, uh, at MCQST, this type of positive discrimination is really beneficial for the community. And they also provided me with some coaching and mentoring activities for women in science, which have been really helpful. Uh, fun fact, for instance, I was in a coaching activity um, a few months ago, and we were discussing about uh, imposter syndrome in science. Mm-hmm. And the question was, uh, if we believed as scientists that if women were more likely to have imposter syndrome than men, and of course, all of us said, yes, women, but the truth is that both 
sexes are bound to have imposter syndrome. Uh, it's like a 50-50% chance. It's just like women are more likely to talk about it. So if you are in a coffee break, talking to your colleagues, maybe you're like, oh, I'm not sure what I'm doing. I feel a little bit overwhelmed. And there's likely that men would be like more like, yeah, I'm in the lab, I'm doing my research, I'm super secure of what I'm doing, uh, which, which is good to know. And also it's good that these kind of discussions pop up in this types of um, events of coaching and mentoring, as I just said. So I think uh, a lot of changes are happening that are helping women to gain visibility and have more opportunities in the field. And I'm glad to be a part of it. That's also an interesting point there that men experience imposter syndrome, but often don't want to talk about it. I guess that's the the sort of the other side of sexism is that men often don't feel comfortable talking about these things and we like to you know pretend that we're being very tough and not not talk about this and that is also something that i hope will change over time that maybe men will become more comfortable saying maybe they they don't feel so secure or they have worries or they have concerns or god forbid emotions and feelings and that it's okay to talk about this and then maybe then okay we start to realize that actually both genders maybe feel the same, but just it's just that we don't talk about it in the same ways or or at all. So yeah, that's certainly something that I would I would like to see as a man. I would like to see <laughs> men having these discussions a bit more often and a, a bit more more honestly. One final question to end on then: If you could go back in time and give yourself just one piece of advice, what would it be? Oh, that's a tough one. I, I would say it's more like a collection of advices. First would be like, try to enjoy and relax a little bit. Enjoy every time you're going into the lab. Just don't be so self-conscious. Uh, take your time. Don't rush through it. Take my time to pose my own questions, to explore. Try to come up with my answers. Try to set like stepping stones. Today I'm trying to learn this or asking this question, I will set the basis and then I will continue because, uh, yeah, this is how it works. You can rush through it. And the second would be like, uh, for me, it's really interesting. Something that I've learned uh, is that you need to build a strong network of connections. You need to, nobody does science alone. So we all benefit from discussions and teamwork. So it's good that you build a nice, strong team you are in a place where you feel comfortable and be able to discuss with all yeah, your collaborators, the people around you. And yeah, for me, this is very important. Before it was very important as a student, like being in a place where you feel motivated. And now it's, it has become very important as a postdoc just to learn how to build a team, how to inspire people, how to show them the big picture. Yes, we're aiming to do quantum communications in the future because the quantum internet is coming today. We have to fix the laser. Sorry, come with me. I will show you how. So uh, yeah, uh, that's, that's the advice I would say. I think that's that's a really good point. The thing you say there about no one does science alone. I think that is a really good point. I think we often, you know, we, we hear these stories about, about Einstein or Feynman Dirac, all these all these people and they're always held up as kind of lone geniuses but i i don't know if that was ever really true but it's certainly not true in the modern world these days you know science is something done by by people by people talking to each other by people working together across borders and across countries and and yeah i think i think you're absolutely right remembering that science is done by people and and 
talking to people is a really, really <laughs> helpful thing in, in us all doing the best science that we can. All right, great. I think that is a, a really good note to end on. So if our audience would like to learn a little bit more about you, uh, is there anywhere they can find you on the internet, for example, on social media or on uh, an academic website, anything like that? Um, yes, of course. So MCQSD um, has a page with my name and my position and I think an email address where you can reach me. Otherwise, I have a Twitter account and I'm also on LinkedIn. So yes, uh, if you're interested, you can always reach me. I would try to answer you <laughs> as soon as possible. And yeah, that's it, I think. All right. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Viviana Vishifania, for your time today. Thank you, Stephen, for having me here. It was a fun experience. Thank you also to the Unitary Fund for supporting this podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please consider liking, sharing and subscribing wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. It really helps us to get our guest stories out to as wide an audience as possible. I hope you'll join us again for our next episode. And until then, this has been Inside Quantum. I've been Dr. Stephen Thompson. And thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.